And as we are able to fully participate as who we are in society, we kick the prejudices ass. And I think that is going to be happening with trans people as well. Mike Balaban with Bammer and Me. My guest today is former U.S. Congressman Barney Frank, uh, who, while during his 30 years in office, was regularly considered to be one of the most powerful members of Congress and, by all accounts, one of the smartest and wittiest members. Um, I've already had some personal interaction with him today, and he's confirmed that witty part. Uh, so we'll see how it comes out during this interview. Barney, thanks for making yourself available. You're welcome. I, let me say, with, with the month we're supposed to show, when I got those accolades as in France, Marjorie Taylor Green was not yet in Congress. <laughs> so I don't know how it would have rated next to her. Let me pause here to clarify that Barney is referring to Marjorie Taylor Green, the Republican congressional gadfly, a wonderfully quick example of his dry wit. Particularly on the funny part. You know, I reviewed some of your books and did learn we share a few traits. Uh, we're both not only gay, but Jewish, agnostic, and left-handed. So with that... I look forward to learning a lot more about you from today's conversation. I wonder if I can pose this challenging opening question. What do you think of the state of our country and democracy today, and where do you think things might head next? I'm pretty optimistic. First of all, as to the current state, um, on almost every important issue, we are better than we've ever been. Certainly that's true for LGBT people. Um, as I, I wrote in my memoir, when I was thinking about getting into politics in nineteen in the 50s, I figured I could never do that because I was gay and being gay made you very unpopular. And to be a successful politician, you had to be popular. Over the next 50 years, 60 years, there was a constant shift in that. And by the time I retired in 2012, being gay was much more socially acceptable than being a congressman. Uh, when I got married in 2012 to, to Jim, my husband, uh, that got better public approval than passage of the financial reform bill. Similarly, with regard to race, obviously there are serious problems. Race has always been the most serious problem in America. But we are so far ahead of where we were. I was in Mississippi in the summer of 64. It's just not comfortable. Um, environmentally, uh, yeah, we are, we are fighting climate change, but we're so much better off. And the problem we have is this. If you believe in any of these causes that I've talked about, you're always fighting to make things better because you never succeed 100%. So from the standpoint of people who care, uh, sometimes they don't see that things have improved because they're still fighting. We're constantly in battle. But we're on the opposition's 10-yard line in many of these things, rather than being on our own goal. So, yeah, I think things are better. Uh, they're even better economically. One of the more recent problems we had, and this is a book I'm writing now, is that uh, the mainstream liberals made this big mistake starting in the 80s when the economy was shifting because of globalization and technology and economic benefits were now being very unevenly distributed. 
it was no longer a case that everybody benefited from economic growth. You had great inequities in wealth distribution. And some of the mainstream liberals, this included my Bill Clinton, who I admired, and, and even Barack Obama, Tony Blair in England, <clears throat> they ignored that. And they continued to push for economic growth without trying to make it more equally distributed. And that was the result that resulted after the Great Recession of 2008 in the anger we now have. So, yes, we do have this threat to democracy now overall because you had so many people who were alienated by the unfair economic situation. The good news, however, is that I think that's now something people recognize. Uh, I think uh, you see, for instance, uh, Joe Biden uh, much more committed to redistributive policies than either uh, Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. You see the same in, in England. Uh, so we're still in that fight. And yes, the, the, the anger that was created by the unfairness is still there. But I'm optimistic that we're going to be able to overcome that as well. And uh, I think uh, you now have people in power in the mainstream left who understand that uh, you have to not just have growth, but you have to make sure the growth is fairly shared. And I think we have the capacity to do that. Well, thank you for level setting our perspective because we do forget how far we've traveled. This wasn't part of my plan to ask this, but you've prompted in me this question, which is, so then is the backlash, the tremendous backlash that's happening on the right against LGTB, trans, drag, all of that, is that the last gasp of a dying order? I have to disagree with you that there's a backlash. Same-sex marriage is now a given. There's no backlash against that. There is a problem with the trans people, but a backlash um, is the deal. Yes, there is much more anti-trans activity going on today than there was 30 years ago. You know why? Because the trans people were totally hidden and suppressed 30 years ago. What you have is a reaction to progress. And look, I see what's happening with trans people now. Similar happened with LGBT people, and that is, or LGB. Um, they, we, we hid those of us who gay, lesbian, bisexual. Nobody knew who we were. So then we told them who we were and insisted on being treated fairly. And their first reaction was shock and horror, and they were upset. And uh, after a fairly short period of time, we got across to them that those fears and, and those prejudices were baseless. So with regard to lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, I, I reject the notion that there's a backlash, uh, as I said. Same-sex marriage is not controversial anymore. Um, the uh, unemployment discrimination in most parts of the country, if you are gay, lesbian, or bisexual, you have all the legal rights that everybody else had. We can serve in the military if we want to. There's no, uh, and there's no effort to, to undo any of those. There is a problem, obviously, with trans people because they are in the position that lesbian gay people were in decades ago they're just now presenting themselves, and people are shocked and horrified and don't know. And what we need is for people to get more and more used to that. And uh, so I, I say, yeah, there is more uh, anti-trans 
activity now, but that's because we are pushing forward with pro-trans activity, and the pattern is, I believe, that that will subside. Now, the, the, there is a, uh, the one problem that's a little complicated is the athletic situation, and you do have many women there, the legitimate feminists who are concerned about that. I will tell you that uh, I worked with Martina Navratilova, and Martina, a great pioneer uh, 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 for, for lesbians and gay people in general, is concerned uh, that if there are not proper rules in place, uh, women, uh, biological women from birth, will be at a disadvantage. I think the recent uh, rules that President Biden proposed, which is that you look uh, individually uh, and that uh, uh, trans people who were born male and have physically remained essentially male I, I agree, uh, should not be competing uh, in, in women's events, but there are many who will be transitioning who can. And that's the only piece of that that I think will remain uh, uh, complicated. And in general, let me say this. I think uh, you asked me, would you rather be born as a black person uh, in 1960 or today? Would you rather be born as a gay man in 1960 or today? Would you rather be born uh, as a woman? or as a trans person uh, 50 years ago or today. And I think in every case is, with all of the problems and the progress that still has to be made, it's better today. And the other thing I would say is this, the progress is self-reinforcing because what you have is prejudice that's based on ignorance. Uh, hatred because people are hating a, uh, a, a stereotype they don't know. And as we get more rights, and this certainly happened with LGB people, and as we are able to fully participate as who we are in society, we kick the prejudices ass. And I think that is going to be happening with trans people as well. That all makes sense. In fact, I've been saying to a lot of people the same thing. You know, the more trans people come out and people get to know them, just like with LGB in the 70s, 80s, 90s, the harder it will be for them to discriminate en masse against them. But the one residual question I have after you made that explanation is, what about the whole notion of, of non-discrimination and access uh, in employment and services? You know, the Supreme Court is backing up the right wing's effort to say, we don't need to serve birthday cakes or whatever. To now, I think what you're going to see now, we have a problem with the Supreme Court, not just for, for uh, LGBT people, but in general, they, they are very aggressive about um, exempting religious people from the rules. And um, I think what you will probably see is to the extent that the service being asked for involves some personal expression on the part of the vendor, uh, they will unfortunately be allowed to say no. Uh, that's not a public democracy in general. That's a problem with the, the way it worked out with the Supreme Court, and in particular, the most despicable violation of our constitutional principle perpetrated by Mitch McConnell with the support of every single Republican senator at the time in refusing to allow Barack Obama his undoubted constitutional right to name a Supreme Court justice. So, yes, that that is the one area where there will be some problem. 
There won't be a general right to refuse service, but in cases where there's some uh, personal, uh, you know, writing something, I mean, I get the way they would make it, if you wanted to buy a birthday cake that didn't say anything except happy birthday, that's okay. But if you wanted uh, a, a display of uh, a same-sex couple, uh, this current Supreme Court will probably, unfortunately, allow that to uh, be changed. On the other hand, that's only true, uh, even that's not universally true, because states will have a right, I believe, to deal with that. So, yeah, uh, I guess the best way to summarize it is this. Being gay, lesbian, or bisexual, not quite yet for trans people, unfortunately, uh, you will be pretty much able to live your life just like everybody else in just about anywhere in the country you'd want to live. There are places where I would want to live where uh, among the reasons not to want to be there would be some marginal discrimination. Uh, and yes, that is the one area. But I, I think it will be confined to a few areas where there's a uh, an involvement of personal expression in providing the service. I'm encouraged by that. Thank you. I'm going to leave that and go back in time uh, and start with, you know, you grew up in Bayonne, New Jersey. And I'm kind of wondering, what did your parents do and what kind of schools did you attend? And what was that childhood like? Oh, I went to public school. Um, I went to uh, an elementary school four blocks from my house. Actually, I have a uh, uh, three siblings, and we range in age over a 12-year period. So my mother was a member of the uh, Washington School Elementary PTA uh, from when my sister started a kindergarten in 1942, I think, till my brother graduated from the school in 1960-something. We, we lived a middle-class existence. We lived in a two-family house in a very nice neighborhood right across the street from a major park. My father ran a truck stop, uh, a major gas station for trucks uh, and all the things. It had a bunkhouse for over-the-road truckers and a diner, et cetera. I worked there uh, Saturdays and summers as I was growing up, and it was a very politically active household in discussing politics. Um, neither of my parents was engaged in politics. Uh, we were uh, in a very corrupt machine area. Uh, the politics, when I was growing up in the area of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, was dominated by organized crime, by the mafia in conjunction with the Longshoremen's Union, which the corrupt version, and the Teamsters Union, again, the corrupt version of people uh, have seen on the waterfront. That pretty much describes uh, some of the atmosphere I grew up in. I was also, uh, I, I'm Jewish, as we've noted, and Jews were maybe 10% of the population of Baal. So there was some uh, self-imposed religious segregation, occasional anti-Semitism, not too much. So it was a pretty happy childhood, um, with the uh, exception being that when I realized at 13 that I was gay, that obviously was a troubling element. Other than that, I had a pretty normal teenage year, uh, including dates in which I was bored out of my mind, but uh, uh, I otherwise participated in, in teenage activities. I think all would-be gabies had the same experience. Um, doing our best to fit in, knowing we didn't. Uh, so what was it 
Was it a big deal for your family when you got accepted into Harvard? No, because my older sister, who's, uh, her name is Ann Lewis. She's a, one of the leading women political figures. Uh, you know, she's older than I, so if if there had not been the uh, sexism that that, she would have had an even more distinguished political career. Um, she was the first woman to be the political director of the Democratic National Committee, and she was Bill Clinton's press secretary. She's very, she has been and is very close to Hillary Clinton, but uh, and she's also very very smart. And she was accepted to Radcliffe in uh, 1954, three years before me. So I was the second member of my uh, family to get accepted to Harvard. It was a big deal for us, but it was not uh, revolutionary. And my father, who himself had dropped out of high school, and uh, you know, he had a truck stop, but he was pretty much a, a blue-collar guy, got a great kick out of his friends calling him Dr. Pusey. Uh, <laughs> Then the president of Harvard. When you got out of Harvard, I know you kind of you went for a PhD and interrupted that to become Mayor Kevin White's, I think, chief of staff or some equivalent position. How, how, how did you get involved in politics? How did you know Mayor Kevin White? Well, I was always interested in politics. As I said, when I was 13, I was watching it on television. I was regretful that I could never be an active participant myself because I was gay and I could never be a candidate. Thinking, well, maybe I can go to work for other people. Um, so I went to college expecting to go to law school. And at Wyoming College, one of my uh, uh, teachers said, you know, you want to think about uh, graduate school. And I decided, well, here's the deal. I'd like to be involved in politics, but I'm gay, and I'm never going to be able to have a conventional family life. And at the time that, that I had to make this career decision, John Kennedy had just become president. And he was bringing a lot of faculty members, many from Harvard and MIT, to work in his administration. And that struck me as the, the model. I would get a PhD, become a, an academic, teach, uh, and of all the places in America, being a gay man without a family, or I assume a gay woman, you got better cover in the university than anywhere else. And it would be the place where not being a conventional family father would be the least advantage. And I could follow the example of Kenneth Galbraith, Arthur Schlesinger, Jerome Wiesner, and take uh, every college gave you a two-year leave of absence if you wanted to take one to get a job, or you could just stay for longer and you know try and get a new job when you came back. So my idea was, all right, I'm going to get a PhD, I'm going to teach politics, which I like, and spend all my time doing that. And I am able to then work in campaigns. Nobody's going to turn down someone working in a campaign uh, as, as a, uh, a volunteer from the door-to-door you know, -door to being a strategist. Uh, and I can, from time to time, go work full-time for another politician. And it's obviously being an academic fit that model much better than being a lawyer. So with that, I decided to go to graduate school. And I was in graduate school, ready to write my PhD thesis. And there was an election for mayor of Boston, 1967. And Boston was then in the throes of racial turmoil, which later boiled over with the busing situation. And there was a Democrat who won the, the, the there were two candidates 
running against each other in the final election, having survived the the preliminary. One was a uh, a liberal Democrat named Kevin White, about whom I didn't know a great deal. And his opponent was another Democrat, but a terrible racist um, named Louise Day Hicks. And she had done very well in the preliminary and scared everybody. And White was looking for people to join his campaign. And through a mutual friend of White's and mine, a reporter in the Boston Globe named Chris Lydon, became a very distinguished broadcast journalist. He still has a show. And his brother-in-law, the chairman of the Harvard Government Department, Samuel Huntington, they recommended me to White. And White asked me to come to work for him. And I did. And after a month, he was favorably impressed and asked me to come to work for him. And uh, I realized at the time that was the first decision. I said, well, you know, I really want to be an academic. I just want to do this temporarily but I'll, I'll, I'll go to work for you for a couple of years. And it soon turned out that I was much better suited by temperament to be uh, a politician than an academic. I have a very short attention span. I bore very easily. I sometimes get in trouble with people who correctly understand that I'm not paying full attention to them. I have uh, figured out ways that I can read uh, when I'm in places where people think they're talking to me. What I had to decide at the end of three years, I was offered a fellowship at the Kennedy Institute of Politics to go back and uh, and and finish my PhD thesis. And I went back for a couple of months and then realized, no, I'm a, I'm a politician. I'm not an academic by temperament. And so I was then offered a job with a man I respected, was a member of Congress, Michael Harrington. And uh, this is in 1971. I said, I'll take it and went to work for him. And uh, that was my decision at that point to to uh, be a full-time politician. At that point, I didn't think about running for office. I, I did that a year later. But, you know, your prior assumption was as a gay man, I, I'll never get elected. They'll start being too, they'll probe too much into my personal life, et cetera. Obviously, along the way, you decided you could deal with that. Well, in a very narrow way, I was living when I worked for the mayor, and I became very popular and prominent there, in a very unusual part of Boston. Uh, I lived among yuppies before we used the word yuppie. This was the early 70s. And it was uh, the downtown residential neighborhoods of Boston, the Back Bay and Beacon Hill. And they were very atypical. Boston then was a pretty parochial place. Uh, the politics were dominated by Irish and Italian uh, somewhat hostile groups with a fairly small black population. And there were people generally who've been there all their lives for generations. But the Back Bay Beacon Hill was an unusually uh, high-end, uh, highly educated group of people who moved in from elsewhere. I ran, I was not out, and I, you know, I was 32, so the fact that I was not married was not obviously a sign at that point or seen with a lot of women. And this was a, a district, I still didn't think I could come out, although I had a, a neighboring state representative, a friend of my sister's, named Elaine Noble, who was the first lesbian elected, uh, who was out uh, to a partisan position. She got elected in that, in part of that neighborhood for two terms. But then as I was serving, it was interesting. I, I benefited from the philosophy, freedom is nothing left to lose. 
because I got elected to the state legislature to this one 40,000-person district, and I knew that I could only get elected there. I knew that because this was this unusual, highly educated, cosmopolitan, not very religious group of people, that uh, they weren't going to look into whether or not I was gay. Uh, I wasn't sure how they react, but I, it just was a non-issue. So for the eight years I was in the state house, I was uh, pretty free to do what I wanted to do. Ironically, because I was free to do what I wanted to do without worrying about the political consequences, because I knew I could continue to get elected in my district, but I couldn't get elected in anything bigger, I developed a reputation for uh, being someone who did what he thought was right without politics. And as a result of that, when a congressional seat opened up subsequently, where liberals were very prominent, I was the choice. So by acting as if I didn't have any political constraints, ironically, I benefited politically. So in 1980, eight years later, you ran to replace Father Robert Drinan, who left Congress when the Pope said that Catholic priests shouldn't be in political office, right? Right, especially a liberal priest. Gotcha. What prompted that decision? And did you go directly and did you get Father Dryden support or anybody else? Oh, I knew I knew Dryden, but actually the year Dryden got elected to Congress was here. My boss Kevin White ran for governor, so you know, I would appear with him campaigning. And I knew a lot of the liberals who were active in his district uh, and interacting with them. And I had become again because I had this kind of freedom. Uh, one of the most prominent liberals in the state legislature because, as I said, I had this freedom from constraint. So when the Pope told him he could run, it was at the behest, we believe, of anti-abortion people in America because Trinan, while he said personally he was opposed to abortion as a Catholic, he wouldn't vote to ban it. So he ordered him not to run, interestingly, having banished a Jesuit good standing. He got a gay Jew as a replacement. <laughs> Trinan said that they never let him near the Pope, but he was going to ask him if it had worked out the way he thought. But I ran in a tough primary against a socially conservative Democrat who'd been a mayor of one of the towns and the cities of the district. But I had emerged uh, from my state legislative work as one of the most active liberals. And and liberals carried the day in that in that district. Well, you clearly developed a following and a popularity because over your next and you did thirty years, fifteen elections, and aside from that first one, sorry, four in the state and sixteen in Congress. Okay, and aside from that fairly close first election, and the last one wasn't quite as much of a drubbing as the ones in between, you typically got 67% or more of the vote, which is kind of unheard of. If the last one was the, was 54-43. That's because I was the poster boy for what we had to do to deal with the financial crisis. I was the floor manager for what we call the TARP, the Toxic Assets uh, Relief Program, which provided the money to keep the banks going. Uh, looking back, it is clear, and I've said this without contradiction, given what we faced and what we could have had and how we staved off total disaster, that that bill was one of the most unpopular and successful things the federal government ever did. 
but I won by 11 points instead of my usual 30. So you, you during those 30 years, you were a closeted gay man made necessary by the political environment of the area. Um, I was closeted for my eight years in the state house, and then for the first seven years in Congress. But for the last 25 years in Congress, I was out. A mutual friend, Brian McNaught, told me a, about a political gathering of gay men in Boston back then in the home of Bob Farmer, the treasurer of the DNC, where, which you attended. And at the end, a lot of hugging took place. But though it was widely rumored that you were gay because you were not out about it, everybody came up to you at the end and shook your hand rather than hugged you. And, and Brian says he went over and hugged you. He just figured what the hell and he felt like you seemed kind of grateful whether that's true or not well there was a lot of that i i increasingly people who other people who were gay knew i was gay by the mid 80s the press and certainly then and pretty much now takes the position that uh, if you're gay or lesbian even if they know it as a fact they won't mention it unless you give them permission or you are involved in some inappropriate activity in which your sexuality was a part. Is it still that way now, or, or has that changed? Because I know that was the way back then. It's, it's pretty, uh, yes, there are gay and lesbian members of Congress who have not chosen to be out, who have not been outed by the press. The problem with that was the only way people knew someone prominent was gay was if he or she had done something inappropriate or had AIDS. But yeah, that, that, that still put, or the, but then I take credit for one amendment to that. It was called the Frank Rule, I'm proud to say, which is that uh, you have a right to privacy, but the right to privacy does not include the right to hypocrisy. And if you are gay or lesbian and are engaged actively as a gay or lesbian individual and live out your sexuality, but you vote to make that illegal, and you don't support gay and lesbian rights. And if you, you, you cannot, in my judgment, fairly be an active lesbian and then persecute other lesbians. So that, that was my rule, that there's a right to privacy but not hypocrisy. And I have supported the outing of people who want to stay closeted but live a gay life. Well, then... You did come out publicly in 1987, prompted by the increased media interest in your public life. How was that for you? Extraordinarily positive. I was afraid, but uh, the reaction was just overwhelmingly positive. Uh, and we then did some polling, and it was at that point in 87 that I came to a conclusion that I've since uh, repeated, uh, that in the mid-'80s, Americans were much less homophobic than they thought they were supposed to be, but sadly more racist than they were prepared to admit. What I found was when I was running and when I came out, 40% of the people who were polled in my district said they thought I'd be hurt politically by being out, but only 20% said it would bother them. So we were at a point there where you know uh, people thought, oh, I can take it, but, but the other people can't. What that meant was, for a while, it was not just socially unacceptable to be gay, it was socially unacceptable to be pro-gay. And as more and more people came out, we diminished this notion that you're not supposed to be nice to gay people. Do you think there was any connection at all between the increased visibility that AIDS forced on our community and that progress? Yes, it did. And uh, 
It was particularly helpful politically. When I got to Congress, well, first in the legislature, I, I filed the game. I wasn't going to come out when I first decided I could run for office, but I decided at the time that I would be a complete advocate, that I would never shy away from advocacy. So in 1972, I became, my first year elected, the first legislator in Massachusetts political history to introduce the gay rights bill. I also, I will say proudly, introduced the first legalized marijuana bill. So when young people say today, oh, now you guys are for marijuana, you know, when, when did you start? And I'm generally able to say, well, several years before you were born, <laughs> uh, because I, I've been the supporter for 51 years. But on the uh, gay issue, I found both in the legislature and even more in Congress, well, particularly in Congress, I would ask people, my colleagues, to vote with us on a pro-gay thing. And the Democrats generally would say, didn't know I was gay at the time. They would say, gee, pal, you're right. Uh, I don't have anything against those people, and that's unfair. But you know, politically, it's too tough a vote to take. And it's not a big deal anyway. People didn't, because we had hidden our pain from people. They didn't realize how much discrimination we were facing. So they could rationalize, well, you gay people, not you, the gay people weren't that badly off, and uh, uh, I'm not going to take the political hit. And then AIDS came. So now the issue was not whether or not people could get a job or go to a club or even or whatever. Um, it was could they live or die? Because voting for effective programs against AIDS, one, they couldn't trivialize it anymore. Life was at stake. They couldn't say, oh, it's not a big deal. So what I got was a lot of Democrats, some Republicans, Voting in what was considered a pro-gay position, obviously fighting AIDS shouldn't have been that, but it was in the political community. And they did it reluctantly, thinking it would be politically difficult, and they survived. I mean, it, uh, it, it, as I said, originally when I asked people to vote for a gay rights bill, it was a no-way issue. You know, hey, pal, I understand that, but no way, I, I can't do that. When AIDS came out, it became an oh shit issue. That is, I would go to these colleagues and friends and say, I need you to vote. And oh shit, you know what? I gotta, I can't let people die. It's gonna hurt me. But then it turned out it didn't hurt them. There was a very able guy named Joe Cantor, who was a gay man who was an analyst at the Library of Congress. And he did some very good studies showing that uh, voting pro gay didn't hurt you. I mean, if you were liberal, there were some people who wouldn't vote for you. But whether or not you were pro-gay is part of that didn't have an effect. So what happened was, for the first time, a lot of members of Congress voted in what was considered a pro-gay position and didn't suffer politically. And that emboldened them to do that even when it wasn't a life-for-death matter. You know, your 30-year career in Congress was long and illustrious, and there's so much that we could focus on, but I'll limit my questions to just a few areas. First, you co-authored the Dodd-Frank uh, Act in 2010, which was intended to shore up the holes in the U.S. financial system revealed by the financial crisis of 2008. Would you talk about how important that was and then share your opinion of its partial repeal under Donald Trump? Yeah, um, it was very important. I take a lot of uh, pride in that. It, it has worked very well. Um, the way it works is this. You look at American history. You have an economic system which is sub 
subject to regulation. And then innovation occurs. And after a while, you have an economic system which doesn't have full regulation because there are new things that have grown up. And you have problems from those until you you, you, you do the new regulation. Um, and it happens in 1900 and 1930. And the problem was there were a lot of innovations in the 70s and 80s. And they were left unregulated and caused the crisis. So what we did in 2008, 9, 10 was to fix it. And I, that law is held up very well. There have not been any repetition of those problems. And uh, one argument from the right wing was, oh, you're going to choke off the economy because you're overregulating. That's clearly not the case. A good friend of mine just left Congress, Ed Perlman, one of our best members. They had a hearing in which the leaders of the big six financial firms, uh, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, et cetera, testified. And he said, I want to ask each one of you, do you think that the Dodd-Frank bill has worked? And they all said, said yes, don't change it. Now, the change you talked about, it's unfair. it wasn't, it didn't come down to, I'm, I'm just in the process of writing, literally. I just stopped to talk to you. An article from the Wall Street Journal. The uh, amendments in 2018 did not undercut the bill in any serious way. What the bill did was to prohibit bad practices and give the regulators the right to give the banks orders about how to work. What was diminished in 2018 were uh, one provision that said that if you were a bank of $50 billion or more in total assets, they had to subject you to certain tests. What the law change said was, no, we're going to move that to 250. The regulators continue to have the power to impose those tests if they wanted to. And they had all the powers they ever had to tell the banks that they had to have more capital and they couldn't do things. I knew that the 50 billion, frankly, had been fairly arbitrary. And so I was willing to support an increase. I would have gone to 150. They went to 250 for political reasons, so I didn't support it in the end. But if you look at what just happened, there is no connection between that, that change and what just happened. Um, in fact, if you read about Silicon Valley Bank, which was the big one, that the, the big failure, the complaint is that everybody knew what was wrong with it and didn't do anything about it. Now, the bill that was passed in 2018 didn't take away any of the powers to remedy things. It took away the requirement that, that they be examined. But if you look at this, anything that they, everybody knew everything. In fact, the fact that there hadn't been these mandatory tests had zero impact because all the information that those tests would have gotten had been public. The reason you had the change, by the way, the change was pushed by a lot of Democrats from Republican states who voted for Dodd Frank and were very supportive. But they were getting some criticism from the smaller banks. And I agreed with them that it was reasonable. Uh, it, basically, what they did in 2018 was to reduce paperwork. But the regulators retained all the power to get whatever information they want and all the power uh, to impose things. And by the way, one of the two banks that closed, the bank where I was on the board, was closed not by the federal regulators, 
by the regulator of the state of New York, I think very unwisely and unfairly, but that regulator wasn't even covered by the 2018 law because that law covered the powers of federal regulators. So one of the two banks that was closed was closed by a state regulator totally unrelated to the bill. Gotcha. You know, there's a critical need for an Employment Non-Discrimination Act, otherwise known as ENDA, in Congress to protect LGBTQ people in the workforce and housing. Can you describe what happened? My perception was at least that in, I think 2007, we came very close to passing that, but there was an issue about whether the trans community was going to be included in the protection or not. And so do we leave them behind and come back and get them later, or do we push for it all at once? And ultimately, nothing passed. Can you talk about that? That, that history is on our thing. That happened in 2009. And this is an example of what I was talking about before. By 2009, we had the votes to pass a bill that outlawed discrimination against lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, but not trans people. That was just too new. But we we had, uh, there were only seven Republicans in the House at the time. I I was in charge of counting, and with Nancy Pelosi, who was very much committed there, across the board, and we we wanted to include trans people, and it would have lost. Look, I've been voting all my life for partial anti-discrimination measures. I voted measures to protect race, people with disabilities, women. Um, and I think if you can get a partial passage and cover some people, A, that's a good thing for those people, but also you show that the laws work. So, yeah, I was very much in favor of doing what we could do. And by the way, most states did that. Some states were then able to come back and, and do uh, trans people. I was struck. One of the people who complained when we passed the LGB-only bill, uh, he had been in New York a few years before when they passed an LGB-only bill, and he was being criticized and asked me to defend him, which I did. Um, at any rate, that's outdated for this reason. There's no longer a push just for employment. The new push is to pass a bill that covers all aspects of discrimination and adds sexual orientation, and gender identity. Now, that passed the House, but didn't have the 60 votes to beat a filibuster in the Senate because, sadly, the country has always gotten much better on LGB and T rights, and the Democrats have gotten better at a faster pace. But the Republicans, sadly, and you asked me before, and they should have said this, have things gotten worse? Yeah, the Republicans have gotten worse. There used to be some Republican support and it's it's substantially eroded. So you couldn't get the votes to, you need Republican votes to get to the 60, and we couldn't get them. But on the other hand, the United States Supreme Court has only recently interpreted the law against discrimination based on sex to cover sex orientation and gender identity. So at least in the employment area, we are now protected. I know you pushed hard for the change in federal hiring policy so that LGBTQ people in the government don't need to fear their jobs being lost, as well as you made sure the FBI began to collect statistics on hate crimes. Is there one piece of legislation or change of policy that you're most proud of having shepherded through Congress? No. Why would I pick one? I mean, I guess, you know, father of eight, which kid do you like the best? <laughs> Uh, so much has changed in American politics since you entered, ranging from the 24-hour news cycle to nonstop partisanship. 
Are there any changes you consider improvements and which ones are harmful to our political system? Oh, interesting. I think um, there's been a decline in, uh, in political bosses. There's much more independence. I think that's a very good thing. Uh, used to be there were people who could decide who would be a congressman, uh, Democrats and Republicans. That's uh, gone away. On the other hand, um, I, I regard the Internet as the greatest source of misinformation in human history. And uh, the decline in people looking for help in getting information is uh, has seriously deteriorated the political climate. You know, that, that extends to civility, that extends to local newspapers laying off people so they don't go after people like Frank, what's his name, in Congress right now when they when they have the opportunity to before they get elected. There's a, I, I guess what you're saying is we've had a shift of focus and priorities. The biggest problem I have, and I blame some of my friends on the left for this, not as much as the ones on the right, but they've contributed a growing cynicism about authority and uh, expertise and knowledge. Um, uh, the, the, you had this with some of the people on the left, in which um, there's a competition. Who can say the most negative things about government? I guess that's it's a it's a diminution in understanding of the importance of government and of collective action. And a lot of people on the left have joined in. I thought Jonathan Stewart, uh, John Stewart, and Stephen Colbert contributed to the right-wing rise because they rarely had anything good to say about government. They talked about the bad things. Yes, you should know about the bad things, but nobody ever talks about the good things. And again, that is, is included on the left, and that provokes a, uh, a negativism, uh, Lack of participation in politics. It's, it, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy that the people in elected office don't care about what the voters think. They only want to listen to big money. So that discourages some people from, from pushing. It's wrong. If politicians are facing a lot of campaign contributions, but also strong sentiment in their districts, votes will kick money's ass. But if people are discouraged from speaking out because of this, notion that the politician will listen, then money wins. So that cynicism about government, that loss of understanding of the value of government is, is a major problem. Doesn't it also feel like there's a disconnect that even when the public is strongly pro or anti an issue, it's not always acted on by Congress. And what I'm thinking about here is the whole abortion thing where 63% of the public feels like there should be access to it, but the Republican Party is pushing lockstep to take it away. Is, is that common or you think that's... Well, I'll tell you two things. First of all, let me tell you that because I have public opinion, there'll be no federal bill that restricts it. No, there is a, the disconnect happens when the people who have an opinion don't communicate it to the members of Congress. In fact, I think abortion proves exactly the opposite. The Republicans are in retreat on abortion. They're worried about it. They're pulling back. Um, this Republican House is not going to pass an anti-abortion bill. No, the, the fact that public opinion is so strongly in favor of allowing women access to abortion. We thought when the Supreme Court, some people thought, when the Supreme Court reversed Roe versus Wade, 
that would lead to a wave of anti-abortion activity. It's the opposite. Because of public opinion. And and Republicans are getting kicked out of office, too. So, yeah, you know, you've always been very clear about your commitment to making a difference. And it's obvious why you were in Congress for 30 years. What have you been focusing on since leaving Congress? And, you know, I'm in the same position you are as a quote unquote retiree, but very active. How does one contribute and continue making a difference once you've left your. Well, first, I've been very active. Any uh, one Democratic candidates. You know, almost all of them, there were a couple I wouldn't help. Uh, I have done a lot uh, to help raise money for and advocate for Democratic candidates. I've done a lot of, uh, of fundraising. I've had a chance to do some writing, and I would, I would advocate that way. I now do a TV hit where I advocate, but I can't imagine it does much good. I am the uh, opposition voice of one of the right-wing cable shows, Newsmax. So I make my case, but I don't think and I have an audience that pays any attention, but, uh, <laughs> and they pay me. Um, I've also worked uh, with helping some advocacy organizations, but mostly the activity has been uh, um, helping elect Democratic candidates. That's great. Thank you on their behalf. You know, finally, I read somewhere that you felt like you would never be able to experience love. And as far as I know, you at least had one lengthy relationship from the 80s into the 90s. And now you've been with your husband, I think, something like 15 years, um, married, yep. or married for almost a decade. What do you attribute that to? How, how did you luck out? Oh, I lucked out because um, as long as I was closeted, it was impossible to have that good relationship. So that was solely because of uh, being gay and uh, the emotional scarring from that. It just took me a while to feel sufficiently comfortable. And also, in office, it was a, kind of a, a hard thing to fully open myself to somebody else. But uh, I think everybody knows that this. You, you prepare a bucket list of things you want to get done. But I have found, increasingly, as I get older, there's a much more important list. It rhymes with bucket. And... Uh, <laughs> That's the list I, I uh, indulge in more and more, and I urge people to pay, pay a lot of attention to it. Are there any lessons in life and any messages you want to impart when you leave this earth? I mean, like when I talk to a lot of younger people and they ask me about my limited experience, I'll say two things. Choose honesty in your partner, no matter what else you find, and expend energy towards those that expend it towards you, not towards those you have to chase. Do you have any thoughts or adages or whatever you'd, you'd want to throw out there? Well, one is being honest saves a lot of time and energy. The other, I have a great piece of advice for people wanting to get into government and politics. Study accounting. I mean, that seems maybe trivial, but you people are surprised how important accounting issues are. But I, I think, I think, uh, being honest with yourself and with other people, it just saves a lot of time and stress. Well, thank you for giving us the time today, uh, and thank you for everything you've done, both for our government and our country. Uh, I hope I'll get to meet you sometime in person, but uh, this has been a, a great second alternative. Appreciate it. Thank you. The podcast you've been listening to is produced by Mike Balaban and Tom Walker, recorded and researched by Mike Balaban, with editing and music from Henry Leigh.